The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 11 to the chief musician, a psalm of David. In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain coals, fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Okay, we're going to be in Leviticus 23 again, the feasts of the Lord. And we got a lot of verses to cover today, don't we? It's verses 23 through 25. How can we tell what the Lord wants us to know from three short verses? Well, if you paid attention to Bob's introduction a couple weeks ago, he gave away the uh, house, but that's okay. I got a little bit to add to it, but not much. He did a very good job on what we're going to see today. Starting in verse 23, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And uh, just because I didn't say it when I was getting started, I call this the Feast of the Lord, the Feast of Acclamation, not the Feast of Trumpets. And there's a reason why, which I'll explain as we go along. Before we get into our verses, we'll go back to the book of Hebrews. I'll cite this again in the middle of uh, our introduction, but I just want you to know that um, in the book of Hebrews chapter 7, it says, for the priesthood being changed, what was the priesthood of the old covenant? Levi. Levi. It was specifically Aaron the priest, the son of Levi. So we have the priesthood being changed of necessity. There is also a change of the law. The priesthood went from Aaron to... Jesus, from Aaron to Jesus. Okay, there you go. And yes, and uh, so we have the change, and if there is a change in the priesthood, the author of Hebrews says there is a change in the law. We are no longer under the law of Moses. So we're going to go on. We're just starting. You're just in time. In uh, 7 verse 18, for on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment. The former commandment is the law of Moses. It is annulled. Okay, he said that. It's explicit. I will send, people will send me something about, oh, you still need to be observing the feast of the Lord, or you need to be observing the Sabbath, and you're wrong about what you're saying, and I will send them these verses. It's right in the Bible. It's black and white, and it is as if they don't even see it. They're not willing to acknowledge it because presuppositions about God's word sink deeply. We can't have presuppositions. We need to start with a blank slate. For there is on the one hand a knowing of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. The law of Moses was not something strong and profitable. It was weak and unprofitable, according to the author of Hebrews. 
chapter 8, verse 13, in that he says a new covenant, new covenant in Jesus, he has made the first obsolete, done, gone, okay? And then in chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews in verse 9, it says, then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, speaking of the Messiah, the Christ, coming to do the will of God, he takes away the first that is what he came to do, was to take away the first covenant. Take away means that it's no longer in effect, that he may establish the second. You don't have two covenants running simultaneously, because then you'd have two priesthood, and you'd have two ways of getting to the Lord. Doesn't happen. The old covenant is annulled, it is obsolete, and it is set aside. He has taken it away. And then, as I do each week, I take you back to the book of Colossians, chapter 2 and verse 14, then he says, having wiped out, get your eraser and go over to the board, and when you wipe it out, it's not there anymore. Having wiped out the writing of requirements that was against us. The law of Moses stood against us. The law condemns. It doesn't bring salvation. It stood against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Did the law of Moses get nailed to the cross of Calvary just like um, uh, Martin Luther took the 95 Thesis and tacked them to the wall, the, the door of the Wittenberg Castle. No. So what was nailed to the cross of Calvary? Jesus. Jesus' body. The law is fulfilled in Jesus' work, and that is the symbolism there. The law is nailed to the cross, meaning Christ's fulfillment of it. And then Christ did something on the cross, didn't he? What did he do? He died. The law died with Christ. Why can't people understand that? Why do they keep reinserting the law? I, I cannot get it. I cannot get it when it is so simple and so clear what God has done in Jesus Christ. Anyway, here we go with the Feast of Acclamation. We are given rather sparse information concerning this particular feast day. You saw we read three verses and one of them is just an introductory verse. Three verses to explain it and not much detail is provided. It is short, it is concise, and it will require a lot of back and forth to try to figure out what it was intended to reveal to the people of Israel. One thing is for sure, this day, known as the Feast of Trumpets by some, Rosh Hashanah by others, is not, I said this earlier, I'm saying it again, it is not a picture of the rapture of the church. How do we know this? Well, here's a question for you. Are we here today members of the church? Yes. Are we still awaiting the rapture? Yes. Then this feast day is not a picture of the rapture of the church. It has become popular since the time of the early dispensationalists to state that the spring feasts of the Lord were fulfilled in Christ's first advent and that the fall feasts will be fulfilled in his second advent. C.I. Schofield, an early dispensationalist, says that this date, here's what he says, is a prophetical type and refers to the future regathering of long-dispersed Israel. John Darby of the same period agrees with this. But this is a feast of the Lord. The feasts of the Lord. Leviticus 23 is the feast of the Lord. This is a feast of the Lord. It is not a feast of Israel. Remember I said that in our first feast of the Lord? People will begin to equivocate on the meanings. It says right there at the beginning of Leviticus 23, these are my feasts, says the Lord. And when they get to the last feast, because they don't understand what God has done in redemptive history through the Son of God, 
They say, oh, these are feasts of Israel. They equivocate. You cannot equivocate on terminology in theology. This is the beginning of error. Eventually, other such error crept in, assigning this day to the rapture of the church. Along with that have come so many false teachings about this particular day that it is almost impossible to know what is true and what isn't. People make stuff up all the time, and each false teaching gets passed on so many times that it eventually appears to be true, because you hear from this guy and this guy, and this, oh, it must be true. The very best way to correct this is to simply ignore pretty much everything out there about this day and to start from scratch. One good starting point to correct these things is to understand that this feast is a part of the law of Moses, right? Everybody agree with that? It's a part of the law of Moses. The law of Moses is, as we just saw, fulfilled in Christ. It is, according to the book of Hebrews, annulled, set aside, and obsolete. Paul says it is nailed to the cross. A law which is all of these things is no longer in effect. We are now under a new covenant and the old is gone. As we are the church and the church is still here, and as the law of Moses is done away with, then this cannot be something future to us now. This is how heresy starts. Logically, if the feasts aren't fulfilled, then we should be observing the feasts. Along with that, then comes tithing. You must tithe. Everybody here, I expect you to tithe next week because we're under the law of Moses. You got to give up pork. Anybody with pork on their breath is out of this church, okay? You now need to be circumcised. If you haven't been, by next Sunday, you better be walking in here circumcised or you are out of this church, okay? Sabbath, we're not meeting next Sunday, are we? We're going to be meeting on a Sabbath day. Right? All of these things, all of these things apply. And all of the other pick and choose things that people say we must do from the law of Moses. Why heresy? Because this mindset says that Christ is not the fulfillment of the law for all who believe and that we must continue to work deeds of the law in order to be pleasing to God. A little yeast and the whole loaf is now leavened. Rather, the feast we will look at today is fulfilled in Christ and in a most splendid way. This doesn't mean that the rapture will not happen on this day. Maybe it will. But it could also happen on any of the other 364 days of the year as well. And we're going to leave that up to the Lord, and we're not going to attempt to usurp his right to choose, and we won't be disobedient to his word, which tells us to not do so. Our text verse comes from Colossians 2, it's verses 16 and 17. So let no one judge you in food or drink, that's speaking of the dietary laws of Israel, or regarding a festival, the Feast of the Lord of Leviticus 23, plus the Feast of Purim, which comes from Esther, and the Feast of Dedication, which comes from the intertestamental period, that's what he's speaking about. Or a new moon, or Sabbaths. The new moon was a festival that they had on the first day of the month, the new moon of the month, and then the Sabbaths are the week. Weekly Sabbath, Paul says, let no one judge you according to these things, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. All of those things happened before the coming of Christ. They were looking forward to the coming of Christ in Christ done. G.K. Chesterton said the following about the New Year's. The object of a new year is not that we should have a new year. It is that we should have a new soul and a new nose, new feet, a new backbone, new ears and new eyes, unless a particular man made New Year resolutions, he would make no resolutions. 
Unless a man starts afresh about things, he will certainly do nothing effective. Unless a man starts on the strange assumption that he never existed before, it is quite certain that he will never exist afterwards. Unless a man be born again, he shall by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Charlie, if we're looking at a feast which occurs in the seventh month of the year, then why are you citing something about the new year? Well, the reason is that there are several things going on in the annual cycle of Israel which need to be figured out in order to properly understand why the Lord selected the first of the seventh month to be the day of this particular feast. In the end, the term New Year applies to it as well, and we're going to see that soon enough. As the law points us to Christ, then we need to look for Him in the things of the law including this, which is described in the Bible as Yom Teruah, or the Day of Acclamation. It was a day, according to Jewish tradition, of sounding the shofar, or the ram's horn trumpet, and rejoicing in the Lord. There you go. I just about lost my cookies on that one. (sighs) Okay, the only thing is, Israel wasn't told why they were doing this. They were just told to do it. Though only three verses, it is a rather complicated study, but it is one which will explain why the feast was given and how it is fulfilled in Christ. Understanding this, anyone who has their mind set on a future fulfillment of this feast will probably never agree that it is fulfilled, despite what the Bible says about the law actually being done away with. I would hope that this wouldn't be the case, but time and experience have shown that minds are not easily swayed, even when things are made explicit. As far as introductions go, we've gone on too long already. Let's jump into these verses and look for Christ. He is there, ready to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is the memorial of acclamation. It's verses 23 through 25. Verse 23, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, as with the feast of first fruits, an entirely new section is introduced, implying that the feast now to be described is logically disconnected from the previous one. As the feast following this one also begins with such an introductory statement, it is a standalone feast. This is in contradistinction to the Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Weeks, which were united in a particular way. No independent introduction was given at the announcement of the Feast of Weeks, showing the connection between the two. Christ would rise, the Holy Spirit would be given, they are interconnected. Verse 24, speak to the children of Israel, saying, the words of the Lord are to be transmitted to all of the people. This is a feast of the Lord to be observed by all to the Lord. And so Moses is directed to speak to the people concerning it. This is no different than the public proclamations made by presidents when calling for national fasting days and holidays and things like that. The Lord is their sovereign ruler, and he is now mandating the next feast in the year to be observed. It is specified as, verse 24 continues, in the seventh month on the first day of the month. It is important to understand, and I've said this before, but try to pay attention if you don't remember it. There are two distinct calendars in the Bible. The first is the creation calendar, and the second is the redemption calendar. 
The same pattern of creation and redemption is seen throughout the pages of the Bible. God creates and then God redeems. The reason for giving of the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments back in Exodus chapter 20 was first based on creation. There he said in Exodus 20, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. That's why he gave them the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments. However, it is based on redemption in the giving of the Ten Commandments in the book of Deuteronomy. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That's Deuteronomy 5, verse 15. So even though he gives the Ten Commandments twice, he gives a different reason for the giving of the fourth command. The same pattern of creation and redemption is seen in the book of Revelation, and it goes all the way through the Bible. But here at the end of the Bible, when praises to God are based first on creation, in chapter 4, it says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. They're praising God because of his creation. And then they're given based on redemption in Revelation chapter 5. Here's what it says. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Creation followed by redemption. Throughout the Bible, one must properly track the calendar which is being used to avoid confusion in what is going on and when. This seventh month in the redemption calendar today is known by its Aramaic name Tishri. However, it was originally known by its Hebrew name as Ethanim in the Bible. This is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 2. The name Tishri was adopted after the Babylonian exile when the names from that calendar were assimilated into the Hebrew culture. The seventh month was originally the first month of the year based on creation. But that was changed at the time of the Exodus when the Lord declared the first month to commence in the springtime, in the month of Aviv, later known as Nisan. That is recorded in Exodus 12, verse 2, and it is based on redemption. Further, despite being the seventh month of the calendar year in Judah, it was also the first month of the royal or civil year in Judah, matching the creation calendar. In other words, the beginning of the reigns of the kings of Judah are aligned not with the ceremonial or redemption year beginning in the first month of the year, Aviv, Nisan, which is in the springtime, but with a royal year beginning in the seventh month of Ithanim, Tishri, in the fall time. I know that's all very confusing. If you want, email me and we can lay it all out in a chart or something to help you. But there are two calendars and there are different things going on, even in the same time frames in the Bible which need to be understood. To more fully grasp this dating system, one can refer to the book The Mysterious Numbers of Hebrew Kings by Edwin R. Thiele. His work resolves many once-believed errors in the biblical chronology. For eons, scholars said, look, there's all these errors in the Bible. You can't reconcile the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles. It's not possible. And Edwin R. Thiele did his doctoral dissertation on it, and when you line them up, it is perfect. There are no errors in Scripture, so much for the naysayers of the Bible. And as the seventh month was originally the first month since the time of creation, we can know that Adam was created at this time. Though not in the Bible, the commentary from this 
from Chabadba provides us invaluable insight into this thought that Adam was created at the first day of the seventh month. Here's what they say. The first day of creation on which God created existence, time, matter, darkness, and light was on the 25th of Elul. Elul is followed by Tishri. Rosh Hashanah, on which we mark the beginning of your works, is actually the sixth day of creation, on which the world attained the potential for the realization of its purpose with the creation of the first man and woman, created on the first of Tishri, Adam and Eve. Rosh Hashanah is therefore the day from which the Jewish calendar begins to count the years of history. The first day of creation thus occurred on the 25th of Elul of what is termed minus one from creation, that is from Chabadba. This commentary is actually supported by an anagram which occurs between the first word in the Bible, Bereshit, which concerns creation and the first day of the month of Tishri, Aleph B. Tishri in Hebrew. They are both spelled with the exact same letters. I showed this to Sergio, and he couldn't believe it. He said, I had no idea that was in there. Okay, well, now it's being put up on the the screen when I do the video work for the thing, but you're not seeing this. They're both spelled with the same letters, though, but when rearranged, the letters reflect one or the other, Bereshit, B-R-A-S-Y-T, if you used English letters, in the beginning is simply rearranged to Aleph B. Tishri or the first of Tishri, A-B-T-S-R-Y. So God is giving us an anagram saying the first of Tishri is the creation of man. Understanding that this is both the day of the creation of Adam and the commencement of the regal or kingly year is important in understanding the true meaning of why the Lord chose this day for this particular feast. Three other times in scripture, this particular day, the feast of the seventh month is mentioned. In Genesis 8, verse 13, it is the day that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked upon the new world. At that time, it was exactly 1,657 years after the creation of the world. Man had been in the world for 596,520 days at this point. Ezra 3 mentions the same day as the day that Yeshua And Zerubbabel, after their return from Babylon, built the altar of the God of Israel and began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. And one last time, this day is mentioned is in Nehemiah chapter 8, when Ezra brought forth the law of Moses and read it to all of the people. In these three occurrences of this month, we can see several readily apparent pictures of Jesus Christ. Noah looking upon the new world signifies new life in Christ, who is our ark of safety in this life. The building of the altar and sacrificing on that altar signifies Christ, who is our altar, as we've seen in previous Exodus sermons, and Christ, our sacrifice, as we have seen in numerous Levitical sermons. And the reading of the law of Moses pictures Christ, the fulfillment of the law. Each occurrence on this day points to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verse 24 continues, you shall have a Sabbath rest. The word translated here is Shabbaton. It's used only 11 times in the Bible, all in Exodus and Leviticus, and all but three are conjoined with the word Shabbat or Sabbath. That would then indicate a Sabbath of complete rest. Because this is not conjoined with the word Sabbath, it is not a Sabbath per se, but rather simply a rest. 
This is explained later in this same verse. It would be better translated as solemn rest. So if your Bible says Sabbath rest, please make a note there. It is incorrect. The reason for using this word Shabbaton here is because the seventh month of the year, like the seventh day of the week and the seventh year of the sabbatical year cycle, is considered a month of resting. In other words, the entire month is considered as a special month to the people. On the tenth day of this month is the Day of Atonement, coming soon to a sermon near you. Later in the month is the Pilgrim Feast of Ingathering, which encompasses the Feast of Sukkot, coming soon to another sermon near you, next week and the week after. And the 50-year Jubilees were to be proclaimed during this month as well. Everything about this seventh month has an elevated sense to it. However, unless this day fell on an actual Sabbath day, it was simply a day of rest and not a Sabbath. Verse 24 continues, a memorial of blowing trumpets, zikaron teruah, memorial acclamation. The Hebrew doesn't say blowing of trumpets. It is true that this is surely what occurred, but that isn't what is stated here. The word simply means that the people were to raise a tumult of joy. The name of the day is actually stated in Numbers 29, where it is called Yom Teruah, or the day of acclamation. In Job 38, the root of the word teruah, the word ruah, is used when speaking of the angels rejoicing at creation. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together... And all the sons of God shouted Ruah for joy. This is the sense of the word and of what is to occur now on this feast day. Teruah can be a war cry. It can be an alarm. It can be a shout of joy. It can be the blast of a trumpet and so forth. In this case, it is a memorial of acclamation. The Greek translation of the Old Testament specifically translates this as salpigon or trumpets. This day has been variously labeled in history as the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of the New Year. In modern Israel, it is known as Rosh Hashanah, or the beginning of the year, because they no longer go by the redemption calendar. They use the older creation calendar or the civil calendar. Verse 24 continues, a holy convocation, Mikra Kodesh, convocation holy. The entire day was to be a festive occasion. As this is the first of the month, it would coincide with the new moon celebrations, which are mentioned at various times in the Bible. But this day in Leviticus, the first of the seventh month, is surely what is mentioned in Psalm 81, where the word ruah is used again. It says there, sing aloud to God our strength, make a joyful shout, a ruah to the God of Jacob, raise a song and strike the timbrel, the pleasant harp with the lute. And then in verse three, it says, blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon at the full moon on our solemn feast day. So you have two different festivals that are being mentioned in that one verse. In this psalm, the new moon solemn feast would be this particular feast of Leviticus 23. The full moon solemn feast would be that of the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which immediately follows the Passover. It was on these holy convocations and others like them that the joyful shouts were to be raised. Verse 25, you shall do no customary work on it. Tal meleket abodah lo ta'asu. All work servile no, you shall do. 
These words show us that the translation of Sabbath is not correct. On a Sabbath, no work was to be done at all. However, on this day, no regular work could be done. But people could prepare food and do other things which would otherwise be forbidden on a Sabbath day. Verse 25 finishes up our many verses today with, And you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. Three particular sets of offerings were actually to be made on this day. First, the regular daily morning and evening sacrifices which were already mandated in the law were to be made. Second, as this is the start of a new month, the offerings of Numbers 28, 11 through 15 were to be made. And as a special set of offerings, they were to be made for this particular <coughs> feast as well. They are detailed in Numbers 29, 1 through 6. Shout out to the Lord, shout with acclamation. It is he who is our king and he who rules over us. Shout out to the Lord, you holy nation. Shout out to the king our Lord Jesus. Let the sound be loud. Shout out joyfully. Let the land be filled with noise to herald the king. Don't sit and be silent. Don't act so coyfully. Get up, people. Raise your voices and sing. It is he who has created and it is he who has redeemed us. It is he who sits as king upon the throne of heaven. It is he who rules, even our king Jesus. So shout aloud at the beginning of month number seven. Our second thought today is fulfilled in Christ. I know that doesn't make a lot of rapture people happy, but I'm sorry, fulfilled in Christ. Unlike the other feasts of Leviticus 23, this one is a bit harder to pin down what it's pointing to. It needs to be fleshed out of what is provided in the Bible, and it needs to be very carefully pieced together. First, it is the only feast which falls on the first of the month, the time of the new moon. This is when the skies are the very darkest, having no light from the moon to illuminate them. The significance of that will be seen as we continue on. Now, I don't want to confuse you, but so that you can begin to see this pattern develop, we will go to 1 Chronicles chapter 24. 1 Chronicles is one of those books that people read and their eyes glaze over and they say, I just don't get why all these names and names and names and names are listed. And then you get one verse that doesn't seem to fit in anywhere and then you get more names, right? It is very important. Every name, every word in the Bible is given to show us Jesus Christ. This chapter of 1 Chronicles chapter 24 details the priest's which serve in the temple in Jerusalem, as if we care at all about that. Well, you will. The division of Abia was the eighth division, as if we care at all about that. Well, you will. Here's what it says in 1 Chronicles 24, 6 through 10, and the scribe Shemaiah, the son of Nathaniel, one of the Levites, wrote them down before the king, the leaders, Zadok the priest, Ahimelech the son of Abiathar, and the heads of the father's houses of the priests and Levites, one father's house taken for Eliezer and one for Ithamar. Verse 7, now the first lot fell to Joiarib, the second to Yedaiah, the third to Harim, the fourth to Siorim, the fifth to Malkiah, the sixth to Miyamin, the seventh to Hakaz, the eighth, the eighth to Abia, A-B-I-J-A-H, Abia. We next go to the New Testament, to Luke chapter 1, to see that Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, was a member of Abia. Oh, that's why it's in there. They went through all of these names to give us one name out of all of the 24 courses of priests in the Old Testament. One name is given so that we can find Jesus Christ. 
He was a member of a and was serving at the temple and was given the promise of a son. I'm going to read you a lot of Luke chapter one. Here we go. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of anybody? Abiah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron. Something very important to understand there, but we'll get into that. I got into it in the Christmas sermon. We'll get through it when we get to this passage in detail in the year 2172. (laughs) Verse 6, And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. These are some old folks, right? So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, we now have the reason why that name was given. It was because one man would be called by God in the New Testament. All of those priest names are given for that one verse. That I just read you. According to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son And you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am old man and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and to bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Later in Luke 1 verse 36, we read that Mary was visited by Gabriel in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. He's giving us a timeline. He's asking us to pay attention. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her own age. And this is now the sixth sixth month for her who was called barren. From this point, we can easily see when Jesus Christ, our Lord, was born. It is not a secret. It's right there in the pages of the Bible. First, we go to the month, which is given in the Hebrew calendar based on the redemptive calendar, which God said, this is your calendar. The first month is Nisan. There would be two divisions meeting in that month. They went for two weeks at a time. There are 24 courses of priests. 24 divided by 12 comes out to anybody? 
two. There you go. So divisions one and two would meet in the March-April time frame, the month of Nisan. Then in the April-May time frame, which is the month of Iyar, would be the third and fourth courses. And then in May and June, the month of Shivan would be the fifth and sixth courses. And then in June-July time frame on our calendar, which is the month of Tammuz, guess who would be at the temple? Verse courses seven and eight, the course of Abiyah. Thank you. One, Zechariah would have been at the temple in the June-July time frame, the month of Tammuz. You add six months because it said right there, six months of her pregnancy until Gabriel spoke to Mary, December, January time frame, the month of Adar on the Hebrew calendar. Add nine months until Christ Jesus, our Lord, was born, September, October time frame, the month of Tishri. We have to make an obvious assumption here that Zechariah got his wife pregnant rather quickly, but that is hardly an assumption at all. First, he couldn't speak until the child was born, which was something that would have made Elizabeth rather happy, but which he hoped would be corrected right away. Secondly, if they had been hoping for a child for so very long, they would have wasted no time in fulfilling this prophecy. The assumptions are obvious, but even more, Luke continues with the timeline in an uninterrupted fashion, asking us to look at the dates based on the other time frames that he provided in a united fashion. It is a very important point to consider. The Bible does this, and it asks us to trust what it says. As a point of theology for all of you to now tuck away, and to consider, Zechariah and Elizabeth were old. We all know that, right? But they were not as old as many paintings of them would have you believe. In the book of Numbers, we read the following. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is what pertains to the Levites. From 25 years old and above, one may enter to perform service in the work of the tabernacle of meeting. And at the age of 50 years, they must cease performing this work and shall work no more. They may minister with their brethren in the tabernacle of meeting to attend to their needs, but they themselves shall do no work. Thus you shall do to the Levites regarding their duties. Assuming that the Levites includes all of the priests, then he wasn't over 50 years old. He was under 50. Though moving along, he was not ancient. I, for example, am 53 years old, and I have tight, healthy skin and youthful vigor, don't I? It would be impossible for me to believe that Brother Zach was any different. Anyway... Based on the Bible evidence, we see that Christ Jesus was born in the month of September, October, which corresponds with the Hebrew month of Tishri. From here, we can determine, we can do it, that Jesus was born on the first of Tishri. Okay? We can do this in several ways. First, we look to 1 Corinthians 15 to see a pattern based on the tradition that Adam was created on the first day of Tishri. Remember what I read you, the sixth day of creation. It would follow reasonably that Jesus, the second Adam, as he is called by Paul, was born on the same day 4,000 years later. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 1.15 and Ecclesiastes, I'm sorry, 1.9 and 3.15, it says that which has been will be again. That which has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. The Bible gives us patterns so that we can follow what God is doing in history. Okay, so. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 45 through 48 tells us Jesus is the last Adam. If he was created on the first of Tishri, we can know that he was born there. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. 
The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. He's giving us this clue, telling us that Adam was created, Jesus was born, and there is a pattern which God is revealing to us. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. When Adam was created, the Lord who created him became, in effect, his king at that moment. That he is the king is reflected in the 47th Psalm with these words. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises for praises to our king, sing praises for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. However, there's also the truth that man would turn from his king. This was known to God before he created the world. Both Peter and John in the book of Revelation state this unambiguously. Speaking of Christ Jesus, Peter says the following. He indeed was foreordained, speaking of Jesus, before the foundation of the world. So we know that even before the world was created, Jesus would come and be born. But was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And so in order to redeem man, God sent forth Christ into the world using the same pattern as is found all the way throughout scripture, creation and then redemption. He created Adam on the first day of Tishri and he sent the redeemer on that same day. It was the first of the month of the creation calendar and the first of the seventh month on the redemption calendar. And as I said, this is the only feast designated specifically as occurring on the new moon, which is the first day of the month. It is the darkest day of the month and thus the best day for what? The glory of the Lord to be seen in the heavens as is recorded in Luke chapter 2. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were greatly afraid. In 1 Kings 1 verse 34, it is seen that the shofar, the ram's horn trumpet is blown at the coronation of the king. In that case, it was King Solomon. As this was the case at coronation, it then becomes obvious why the Lord mandated this feast on this particular day. It is the day when all of Israel would be joyously shouting with acclamation and blowing shofars all throughout the land. On this day, the king of the universe was being born among men. Little did they know that they were heralding in the true, the great king of Israel. Jesus Christ. The patterns are simply too rich and they are too many and they are way too well orchestrated to be by mere chance. Again, in Numbers 23, verse 21, we read these words. He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord, his God, is with him and the shout of a king is among them. There, the term shout of a king is teruat melech. It is the same word, teruah, used here in Leviticus to signify this particular day in the redemptive calendar. This was certainly fulfilled in the shouting of the heavenly host at the birth of the great king, Jesus. And again, Psalm 47, which I read you earlier, and I'll read again, a psalm read on this same day each year in Israel to this day, it says the following, Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. Once again, the idea of ruah or shouting to the king is identified with this day. 
Three verses later, the same psalm then says, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of the trumpet. There the teruah, or shout of acclamation, is combined with the sound of the shofar, all pointing to this one particular day in history when Christ was born and the king of the universe was made manifest among us. As a marvelous pattern of creation followed by redemption, we have seen that Christ was born on the same day that Adam was created on the first day of the first month of the creation calendar. This is the first day of the seventh month of the redemption calendar. But did anything happen in the Bible on the first day of the first month of the redemption calendar? The answer is yes. Exodus 40, verse 17, it says, And it came to pass in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month. Does anybody remember? We did that sermon about 82 sermons ago. Anybody? No? Okay. The first day of the month that the tabernacle was raised up. This tabernacle, every detail, and I know you remember this, points to Christ. And his ministry was erected on the first day of the first month of the redemption calendar. Thus we have Again, as we have seen many times in Scripture, the pattern of creation being followed by redemption. The Creator is our Redeemer. The King has come. Shout aloud and rejoice. He has come to redeem fallen man. Let your shouts be heard, even with a resounding voice. Blow the trumpets aloud as hard as you can. He has come. The King of the ages is here. We gather around Him. He, the King of the Jews, Yes, all people, come see the sight, draw near, and then go forward and spread this glorious news. The baby born in a manger is the king of Israel. This child laying helplessly shall rule all the world. It is the most marvelous news. Go forth to all and tell. Spread the word and may joy from the heart now be unfurled. And I do have a third thought for you today. Even though we've solved the mystery of the feast, it is the significance of Christmas. When you ask a Korean person, I know this because I attended a Korean church for three or four years, and I have many very close Korean friends because of that. When you ask them how old they are, they will give you an answer which does not fit with what you and I understand as age. The reason why is they consider their age from conception, not from birth out of the womb. Until you get this, it's often hard to grasp why they tell you at one time doesn't seem to match with that at other times. At least Koreans get the idea of the sanctity of life within the womb, even if Democrats don't. (laughs) Understanding that Christ, the second Adam and the king of the universe was born on this feast day. There's one more point which obviously needs to be addressed. If Jesus was born on the first of Tishri, as the Bible shows, then what on earth are we doing celebrating on 25 December every year? Over the years, people have said, oh, that's a Catholic attempt to align the holidays with a pagan festival to accommodate their older beliefs as they became Christianized. Well, whether this occurred or not has nothing at all to do with Jesus Christ. The equinoxes and the solstices were created by who? The Catholic Church? No, they were created by God, and they reflect what God is doing in the world of creation and redemption. If this has been misused by other religions, it doesn't change the true intent for when these things occur. Just about three weeks ago, I saw an article in Mail Online where they found something up in England where they are actually celebrating the 25th of December in a monolith. And you wonder why they would do that. Why would they do that? 
because they understood something that it seems nobody else seems to get nowadays. The significance of 25 December is far more beautiful than a crude attempt by Catholics to harmonize pagan beliefs with those of Christianity. The human gestation period is approximately 270 days. It does vary, but this is right at the average. If you go back 270 days from the first of Tishri when Jesus Christ was born, you will quite often, because the calendars don't match exactly, but quite often you will come up to 25 December. What this means is that Christ was conceived on this day, and the people of the world knew it back then, and that's why they celebrated this day. Probably the true celebration of this day is not the birth of Jesus from the womb. What we've been celebrating is the birth of Jesus in the womb, when God united with human flesh in the womb of Mary, which is actually more incredible, by the way. The conception, the incarnation of God among men is the most incredible thing that happened in human history, along with the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Nothing can be more astounding. Why do you think we're celebrating 25 December? It's because he was conceived on that day. Understanding that eight times in the past 117 years, both Christmas and Hanukkah, the festival of lights have occurred on this exact same day, on 24-25 December. This is the same day as the Feast of Dedication, which is mentioned in the book of John, chapter 10 and verse 22. In John's writings, he cites Jesus' words concerning his fulfillment of that feast. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am what? The light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And again, that was the true light, it says in John 1, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. As incredible as it might seem, Jesus was probably conceived on the Festival of Lights, or Hanukkah, and he was certainly born on Yom Teruah. The prophetic patterns of the Bible completely and amazingly support the wonderful fulfillment of the feasts of the Lord in Jesus. There is no reason, absolutely no reason, to look for a future fulfillment of this particular feast. It is fulfilled in Christ, and there is also no reason to look for a different time of birth for Christ as some have recently done, placing it in the springtime. Incorrect. There are people out there that are putting out books because they sell well and because they're Jewish and they suddenly sound like specialists when they have no idea what they're talking about because the Bible has given us the chronology. It has given us that for that specific reason, that one name out of all of those names in 1 Chronicles 24 is to tell us when that man was in the temple. And then from there, Luke is very, very particular. I am going to tell you when my son is coming into the world. And I'm even going to give you a hint of when he was conceived into the world. Tell me that's not amazing, right? The Bible has carefully recorded special circumstances which occurred in one particular line of priests, that of Abia for a reason. It then carefully and methodically gives exactly the other time frames necessary to pinpoint the time when Christ Jesus was born. It also gives numerous patterns which confirm the exact date within this time of year for us to know with all certainty that he was born on one Tishri. None of this is by chance. Rather, these things are recorded because God is alerting us to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. He's anticipated in all of these redemptive pictures and that he is the fulfillment of them all. 
As this is so, then he is obviously asking us to follow through with what the Bible says is necessary in our lives concerning Christ. It says that he is God's gift to the world and that all who believe in him will be saved. It says that he is the only path to salvation and that no one can come to the Father but through him. Either that's true or it's not. And I can tell you what, if we go through all of these amazing patterns again and again and again, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of them since we started the book of Genesis, and they're all pointing to the same thing, then obviously he is serious when he says that no man comes to the Father but through me. God wouldn't waste all of this time doing this, showing us the marvel of his introduction into the stream of humanity if he would let one other person in all of human history be an exception. It's okay. You're accepted. The meaning of Jesus Christ's cross would be utterly obliterated if God did that for one human soul. It would be utterly obliterated. And we talk about how God is the father of all humanity and how he loves everybody and blah, 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 blah. He does love all humanity. That's why he sent Jesus to die on a cross for us is because he loves us so much. I just don't understand how people can't get that. Seeing those people walk out of that service yesterday broke my heart and I can't stop thinking about it. They didn't even get to the grace of Christ before they got up and walked out. It was only Old Testament stuff. They didn't even want to hear their own writings It breaks my heart. It literally breaks my heart. Christ did not come to give us eternal insecurity either, folks. He came to give us eternal security. When he gave up his life for us, it was done. We're all messed up, every one of us. And I know that. I know that. And you know that too. But when you screw up, just confess it and move on. Lord, I'm sorry. But I know that you've forgiven me eternally because your precious blood is a lot better than my Failing sins. I don't mean to be animated, but I am today. I love the Lord Jesus, and my heart is broken over what happened yesterday. It's all that Paul asked me the last four times that I was with him. Give the gospel. My neighbors haven't responded. Give them the gospel. He said, give it to them double punch. He was desperate for them. And one couple stayed, and they said, thank you for that message so much. I couldn't believe it. My hair stood on my arms when Elaine called me and told me that last night. One of the two Jewish couples stayed, and they responded. I don't know if they received Jesus or if they ever will, but they loved the message, and they were thankful for it. So we'll have to see in glory what happens. Jesus Christ is God's gift to the world, but it also says that he is the one mediator between God and men. In other words, God does not hear the prayers of anyone except those who come through Jesus. A mediator is there for a reason. You know what? I probably put it in the prophecy update next week. I read an article online this morning in Mail Online. Atheists are the first to call out to God when things go bad. I've said that all along. They just confirmed it. We all know it's in us. We know it. And we don't want to recognize him all of our life. And then we call out to him. God does not hear their cries because they haven't gone through the mediator. You must go through Christ. This is what the Bible teaches. I cannot teach otherwise. I must teach what this word says because it is the word of God. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ, but think that you are right with God, you are wholly mistaken. Think it through. Look at what God has done in Christ and call out to him for salvation. 
This is your obligation. He's done all of the work, all of it. Now he asks you to simply believe that and by faith receive what he has done. And it is glorious. It is literally glorious when we look at these patterns and see. Aleph B. Tishri Bereshit. He gives us a word right in the Hebrew language telling us the first of Tishri in the beginning. And that gives us a pattern that we can trust that Adam was created and that Christ came to redeem. He was born on the darkest night of the month, the night of the new moon. On that night, God's glory lit up the heavens. It was a picture of the true light entering into the spiritual darkness of this world. And then he died when? Before the start of the brightest night of the month, the full moon. Again, a spiritual picture was given to us. Our hope is not extinguished by darkness. He died on the cross and the hope is gone. No, the moon was shining bright. God put those things in the heavens for us to Feel the comfort when things were bad. As it says in John 1, verse 5, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Let us remember this, and let us carry with us the true light always. May the light of Christ shine upon you now and forever. May it be so. Our closing verse comes from Luke chapter 2, Guess why I picked this verse, folks? Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Imagine what God did for us. Imagine the creator of the universe loves us this much. Next week, Leviticus 23, 26 through 32. Sins can't be forgiven by paying off God, even with your very last cent. It's entitled the Feasts of the Lord, the Day of Atonement. That'll be our 41st Leviticus sermon. And I'll tell you this, you know, we just went through the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, an entire chapter. How many sermons did it take and how much detail did we get out of that? I thought I am just going to have to cut and paste for this next sermon. And I was completely wrong, as I always am. What an idiot I am. I keep thinking I'm just I I don't know what I'm going to do on Monday. Dad walks by and tries to open the door and I forgot to unlock it. I get up and I'm like, don't bother me. It's Monday. It's so exciting. I get into here and my hair is standing up and I'm seeing things that I never imagined. The Feast of Tabernacles, same thing. It's coming soon to a sermon near you and it is wonderful. And then we'll be done with those and we'll be in Leviticus 24. And then 25, our brother Vic's favorite passage of the whole Old Testament, I think. And I don't think I'm going to do it the justice that he wants, but I'll do my best for you. Wonderful stuff coming. And then we get to Leviticus 26. And you talk about a mournful passage, which I have not yet started typing. The blessings and the curses on the people of Israel for obedience or disobedience. I don't know how I'm going to make it through those verses. I do not know. Because of the mourning over what happened to those people because of their rejection of the Lord. It is unbelievable. But we'll do our best. We'll see. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a lifetime of sin is actually heaped up behind you, way up behind you, he can wash it away and he can purify you completely and wholly. 
So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Remember, just to let him work through you. As he said about Paul, everybody that Paul met, here's a track. Everybody that Paul met, can I tell you about Jesus? He lay in the hospital from May until November in absolute agony at times. I mean, literally, that guy was in terrible shape. And he was always getting the name of the nurse and giving her a track and telling her about Jesus. Finally, after so many times of being moved, he couldn't even remember their names anymore. Have I talked to him about Jesus? Utterly confused at how they were treating him, you know, room to room and nurse to nurse instead of being consistent. But he kept trying his best, telling him about Jesus until he couldn't tell him anymore. He used up the whole hospital. It wasn't time in his life to get him to another hospital. He would have told the whole hospital there, too. What a man of God. Thank God for people like that. Oh, I'd be so happy to see Paul Stoll again someday. Our poem today is called The Coming of the Second Adam. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These are the words he was then relaying. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, as to you I attest, on the first day of the month you shall have a Sabbath rest. A memorial of blowing trumpets is what you shall do. A holy convocation. Observe this day as I instruct you. You shall do no customary work on it according to this word, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. Lord, you planned it all and then laid it out in the feasts for Israel to observe each year, to leave us with certainty, without a doubt, seeing their fulfillment in Christ, it all becomes clear. It is true at the day of acclamation, we now know. We see that the angels praised God on that marvelous day. When Christ came into the world, there was a heavenly show while the trumpets of Israel were blowing away. Thank you, O God, for the giving of your son. Thank you, O God, for the coming of our king. We praise you for the marvelous things you have done. And to you forever, we shall shout aloud and sing. Hallelujah and Amen. amen. Heavenly Father. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for the sure hope which we possess. And when we're downtrodden in our spirits because of losing a close friend, when he knows Jesus, we don't have to be too downtrodden, too downhearted. We don't have to be that because we can rejoice that there is a better hope found in Jesus Christ. Thank you that Paul had that assurance and that we who have called on Jesus have the same assurance and it cannot be thwarted. Your word says it is so, your word is true, and we have the hope of the ages in us, and may that day come soon. Oh, Lord God, may that day come soon. We hail you, we praise you, King of the ages, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.